We are in our series called Heavenly Expectations from 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. This section deals with the glory of salvation. It talks about God's motivation in it. It talks about the safeguards that he has put in place for our salvation. It says that we are recipients of God's mercy, and then it has a qualifier when it calls it great mercy. Great mercy. It indeed is great. What other word could be used of a God who loves humans the way they are? So undeserving. To make them his people, right? And his mercy was great in calling Israel to make him his people. And it's great now as well in the new covenant of calling us his people. And his provision in doing this is not just supplying a different set of morals or supplying, um, you know, particular doctrines, although each of those are, are within Christianity. But it provides a living hope that is verified through the space and time historical event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The efficacy of God's mercy extends to us and includes being in Christ to where our eternal destiny, get this, is called imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now, the topic in this section is clearly salvation because it's mentioned a couple times. Being born again is mentioned. So what does it mean that our salvation is imperishable? undefiled, unfading. I don't think Peter is interested in getting into a doctrinal diatribe about these things, trying to argue the point. Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to believers who are being persecuted. And so he's wanting to give them encouragement by talking to them about what is up ahead. You know, stay in the fight, Look at the finish line. Keep faithful. Look at what eternity has for you. Right? That's pretty cool. So he's giving hope to persecuted believers. I mean, does it give hope if I say, you better keep on the straight and narrow or you're going to forfeit your heavenly inheritance by going to heaven? Does that give encouragement? Or is he saying, your inheritance is kept for you by God and don't allow the present circumstances to diminish your hope and forget how much God loves you. That's amazing. I think there's a little sentence in Colossians that kind of sums this up when it says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Like double protection here, right? We died with Christ, meaning that our, our old life is dead, and what we enjoy in the spiritual realm is now hidden with Christ in God. By hidden, it means there is nothing that can get to it that can destroy it because of Christ. And so it is safe and secure because of Christ. And notice our life is literally... Christ, 
Now, I don't think we should tone this down to just mean that Christ is our possessor and giver of eternal life, even though he is those things. But it means literally Christ is the very essence of the Christian life because he's in the believer. Not only are we with Christ, but we are also in God, Christ in us. A.T. Robertson commented on this and said this, no hellish burglar can break that combination. So Christ is the source, the meaning, the purpose, the identity, the, the whole of life. If we looked at our past, present, and future, we could say this, that our past is forgiven by Christ. We have died with him. Our present is powered. And by the way, let's, let's not rush over that. How many of your sins did Christ die for? So that means even the sins I committed once I accepted Christ, right? How many of them did he die for? How many has he forgiven? See why it's undefiled, imperishable, right? So our, our past is forgiven by Christ. Our present is powered by Christ because he is in us. <clears throat> now, that is not the import of this passage, but this, it, it, it's an incredible truth, not the import of 1 Peter, although Colossians talks about it. But to think that there is no temptation, no situation that I'm in that God has not given me the ability in Christ to deal with that. Every situation. And then our future is secure in Christ because we are risen in new life eternal life. So again, this is why Peter says, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, because we are hidden with Christ. He's the keeper of it. Well, why does this matter? Well, let, let, let's look at this and um, stand as we look at First Peter Chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Heavenly Father, for these, my dear brothers and sisters, I pray that these words from 1 Peter would so penetrate their heart, would so encapsulate their beliefs that would make a palpable difference in how we approach trials, how we approach life itself, because your grace is so great toward us. 
We give you passageway into our heart and minds. We welcome your work. Take your word. Meld it into our perspective. Make the changes that are needed, we pray. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, you may be seated. Most of you have probably seen the movie uh, Signs with Mel Gibson, right? True story. Um, (laughs) Aliens come down, right? But there is a scene that's fairly poignant. Uh, You might remember that uh, he plays a uh, priest who's quit. And he quit because his wife was killed and hit by a car while she was running. And, uh, you know, he has struggled with this. You know, his, his faith has really kind of uh, gone south as, as a result. And there's a scene in which uh, one of the aliens has grabbed his son, and the son has this asthmatic attack, but he doesn't have his medicine. And so um, they, they get the son, Mel Gibson does, and he's kind of massaging his chest, trying to get him to breathe. And, and he, he whispers you speaking to God I hate you I hate you it's very telling and actually probably representative of the attitude and beliefs of many believers when they go through various trials and didn't get what they expected felt like God did not come through for them that they did not deserve certain trials You'll be happy to know it ends well in the end, so if you didn't see the movie, okay? Um, I think that Peter is writing this book to help answer some of these feelings that believers get when they are in trials. And this section particularly addresses those feelings for us. It's very human. All right? In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So, there are Christians who, when they go through trials, they endure. They continue to be faithful, and they will be richly rewarded. There are other Christians who had genuine conversion, but their faith has great seasons of faltering. They not only question God, they might even say the words, I hate you. Hmm. Faith, according to Peter here, turns the protection of Christ into a source of hope and rest. And I think he wants that to be the case for us, that there is hope and rest for us, right? Faith turns sound doctrine into sound attitudes, sound practice. What difference does it make? I've asked this the past couple weeks, that we are Christians and we've gone through the last couple years. What difference does it make in how we view the political spectrum, the the tone of our country, the, the pandemic and all that's associated with it What difference does it make that I'm in Christ and Christ is in me? Am I just like everybody else? Or is there a palpable difference in how I'm approaching it? And I think what Peter is saying is, 
it makes a difference. That you are in Christ and Christ is in you. It doesn't mean that you can't have feelings about it. It doesn't mean you can't have opinions. But in how I'm wielding that with others, it makes a huge difference. When I was in college, I went to the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And my Sunday school teacher, when I went to church, was Warren Wearsby. And Warren Wearsby was the former pastor of Moody Church. And as you can imagine, there were many college students who showed up for that class. Um, but he commented on this passage. And so these are not my points. These are his. When he said that trials meet needs, trials are varied, trials are not easy, and trials are controlled by God. So I liked it so much, I'm using it, but I'm attributing it those to him, okay? First of all, trials meet needs. The phrase, if necessary, indicates that there are some trials that are actually needed. God appoints and directs the trials. Sometimes trials discipline us when we've disobeyed God's will. The psalmist said, before I was afflicted, I went astray but now I keep your word. Trials also promote spiritual growth by showing us the frailty of our flesh, depending on self, and showing us how great God is. Paul would write these words, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness is so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How has your contentment been the last couple years? When I'm weak, then I am strong. Trials are varied. Now, imagine being the recipient of this letter for the first time and the context in the first century when Peter wrote this. Christians were wrapped in freshly slaughtered animal skins, fed to wild animals. They were dipped in pitch or tar, set on fire as torches in Nero's gardens at night. And this persecution went on for a couple hundred years in the Roman Empire. Some Christians may think, how can God be using such a thing? How can there be any purpose in this? If he does know about it, then certainly he must be powerless. That's what some people conclude. I would remind you that what God does is test us in a trial. He does not tempt us. A trial is a test to see if we can stand up to a strain. A temptation is an attempt to destroy something. 
God does not appeal to a sinful desire. God does not tempt us, encouraging us to yield to sin. Even though he can use the devil's motivation as a means to testing the strength of our faith. Paul used the term various trials. It means multifaceted, multicolored. God paints the trial to address a particular need and accomplish a particular purpose. Sometimes we meet a trial one day and we expect it to outfit us for the rest of our lives, but it doesn't work that way. Each trial is for a particular need. God matches the trial to our needs. Trials are not easy. Trials produce grief. Some of us perhaps grew up in a Christian tradition that we were to have a stiff upper lip when it came or when it comes to trials. You don't admit that you're grieving because if you grieve about a particular trial, that means you have failed. I don't buy that. When we try to put on a brave front and we fail to acknowledge our weaknesses, our flaws, I think this diminishes our motivation to look to Christ. I don't think grief is failure. Rather, grief is an honest reaction that sees the pain of how things are and realizes what they could be or even should be. Grief is, we could say it this way, grief is the result of heaven colliding with earth. There's a chasm there. And inside that, there are many travails and a lot of grief. So to not grieve seems to diminish either what we're going through on earth or the wonder of heaven. So when people grieve about things that go on in their life, this, my friends, is a good thing. We're acknowledging heaven and earth. Allow God to give you a healthy grief to grow in your faith. We're not robots. That'll be the only thing you remember about this sermon. Kevin said, we're not robots. All right. Awesome. Trials are also controlled by God. Our trials, it says, last for a little while. When God permits, listen, when God permits his children to go through the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. If we rebel, he may have to reset the clock. But if we submit, he will permit us to suffer not anywhere beyond what we can or should. The important thing is that we learn the lesson he wants to teach us and that we seek him continually in dependent faith. Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation 
of Jesus Christ. Here we read of at least one purpose to all trials. It's there to purify. Purifies our faith. Just like a goldsmith purifies gold. The artisan puts the gold on high heat long enough so that the impurities rise to the top. He skims it, and sometimes the goldsmith will look in the gold and see his face in the reflection. Just like when we suffer, we're to see the face of Christ, a visage of the character and glory and beauty of Christ that comes as a result of the suffering. Impurities could mean a whole horde of things that we depend on instead of depending on Christ, right? We can depend on money. We can depend on a political system. We can uh, depend on our flesh, ourselves, a whole host of things that God is wanting to kind of allow us to see the futility of that and to see the glory and power of Christ. Well, a couple weeks ago, um, Janet asked me to go get some maple syrup. Okay? I don't know if you've done this lately, but I glanced at the $8 bottle of maple syrup and then gladly fetched the $3 Larger bottle of Hungry Jack. Right? <laughs> right? Now, when it comes to syrup, there is a reason why it is so pricey. Though slow and a painstaking process, the traditional art of maple sugaring takes large qualities of essentially a useless substance and turns it into something worth stretching your grocery budget to buy. By the way, I had to go back and get the maple syrup. You know how these things work, husbands, right? First, the workers venture deep into the woods called the sugar bush. They use hand drills to make small holes into the trunk of maple trees. A metal tube called a spile is tapped into each hole. A bucket is hung on each spile. The sap that begins to drip into the buckets is thin and clear like water. And it's just only a hint of sweetness. And on a good day, 50 trees will yield about 30 to 40 gallons of sap. As the buckets fill, they are emptied into large kettles, set over an open fire. The sap comes to a slow boil, and as it boils, the water content is reduced, the sugars are concentrated, and hours later, it develops this rich flavor and its brown-golden color. Then it has to be strained several times to remove impurities before being reheated, bottled, grated for quality. Listen to this end product. Of those 30 or 40 gallons of sap, one gallon of maple syrup is produced. No wonder it's so expensive, right? You know, when we come to Christ like 
raw, unfinished sap. We could have been tossed aside as worthless, but God knew what he could make of us. He sought and found us, and his skillful hands are transforming us into something precious, sweet, useful, and that long and often painful refining process brings forth a pure, genuine disciple, easily distinguished from cheap imitations. That's at least one purpose of our suffering. It's enough to encourage us to know that God has not forgotten this all-important process and is always working in sanctification, working out these impurities in the midst of suffering. I know it's hard to believe that he could do that through something as painful as a, a family that's split or a job that is lost or cancer or a myriad of other varied trials. But don't limit the power of God. Don't limit his sovereignty. I think that he cannot work in what you deem as the worst of things. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Joy does not come from the things that we have, our possessions. It says here it comes from an indwelling Christ, Christ in us, the relationship with Christ. And it says that you can have this relationship Though we have not seen him, it's enjoyed. His promises depended on his word giving us clarity about who he is. And to the degree that we know him in reality as he's revealed in the scripture is the degree that we fall in love with him. Right? Absolutely. I mean, how many people are falling in love with other people online? They've never met them. How can we not fall in love with the Savior through the power of the Word of God? And he's not giving us just what we want to see through some, you know, social media posts, the best pictures. No, he shows us himself in raw form, all the suffering, all the saints of old as we learn about how the Christian life has been failed at, succeeded at, and all of this is used to give us a picture of not only the Christian life, but of who Christ really is, that he's responded to these people in the past. But let's be clear, one cannot love another unless there's a clear-cut conception of that person. That's why we, we demand for truth from our spouses, Right? None of us want to be lied to. I can deal with the truth, or I think I can. But what is especially disconcerting is when people say things that are not true. They're not presenting themselves for who they really are. So you have to know the person in order to love them. And again, there's a clear-cut conception of Christ within the Word. To know him better is to love him more. So how could these Christians 
face their suffering because they chose to love Christ and believe in him to continue to, though they did not actually see him in the past. Right? Now, there are some that don't choose to love Christ in the midst of suffering. There are some who maybe are like Mel Gibson in the movie. I can't stand that I'm going through this. There are certainly consequences to that kind of faltering faith. But again, joy does not come from the things we have. It comes from this relationship with Christ. You can have the relationship with Christ even though we have not seen him. This is not contrived or fabricated. I hate the contrived joy up on church stages and jumping up and down. It's what I love about Gary and our worship team. It's just so genuine to me. I'm not judging others. I'm just telling you what I like. And I guess if you're here, you like at least some of it. <laughs> but I, I appreciate the genuineness of that, the realness of that. I don't want something that's concocted or so well staged that it's like, wait a minute, who I see there is not who I see off the stage. Joy. It's more than just having the right words. And notice, it's inexpressible, filled with glory, well, certainly, it gives Christ glory when we realize the joy of this relationship we have with him, the word of God that gives us this clear visage of who he is, and the relationship that he continues to want from us. And we, again, are so impressed with his unbelievable grace toward us should blow our minds, right? I mean, we I grew up, and maybe you grew up, within a church culture that basically made you feel so guilty if you went to a movie, played cards, had long hair, listened to rock and roll. And I had all those things. <laughs> right? And just depending on what subculture you go to, you'll have a different set of rules now, right? Don't do yoga, maybe still don't go to movies, and you have this whole list, and the Christian life is surmised by, you know, making sure you do it right. And it puts the emphasis on our performance. And the joy is there as long as our performance matches what it should be, but it's gone as soon as we don't perform right. That doesn't seem to be the picture that Peter is writing about here. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Their lives ought to have this forward-looking otherworldly dimension that is often lacking among Christians. So we can experience today some degree of this future glory. I like what Spurgeon said. 
He used to say, little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. It's not enough that we long for heaven during times of suffering. What Paul urges readers to do is to exercise love, faith, and rejoicing so that they might experience the glory of heaven now. And not every Christian does this. I, I, I want you to see this, that there, there are Christians that are not living this way, and there are other Christians that are, and Peter's trying to pave the road. Look what you're missing. Even though you're suffering now, there can be great joy and contentment. Remember the kind of faith that happened when you were saved? There was salvation of the soul because salvation is contingent on faith. Faith is attributed to every believer at the point that they trusted the gospel. And Christians can enjoy benefits if they continue with that faith. But they will not have all of those intended benefits if they are faithless. Joy, endurance, those are ours. Peace, when we remain steadfast through the Christian life. But what happens when one's faith falters? Anybody here have a faith that's never faltered? I sure have. I can remember a time when we first moved here. I won't go into all the details, but I remember sitting in my car in the driveway, and it's honestly the only time in my Christian life that the, this thought I grabbed onto and actually believed. I thought, God, you don't care about me. And I remember as soon as those words left my mouth, I'm like, Eesh. but it was the state of my heart and my mind. And it was a dark period. Our faith falters. None of us can say with certainty what happens when a Christian or a person goes through that did they not have faith in the, in the first place? Well, it could be. There are some false professions. I get that. The Bible talks about that. But if one is a true believer, they have been saved. And clearly, that is what Peter is talking about here. All right? Then what happens when your faith, faith falters? Well, he doesn't really get into great detail of that in 1 Peter. We have to go elsewhere to learn about that. Um, Hebrews speaks of that. Hebrews speaks of what happens when uh, people turn to Judaism, a religious system, once they uh, believe the gospel, and there are grave consequences that come as a result of that. Um, after trusting Christ, they went to a religious man-made system. But listen, you, you want to point the finger at other people, let me tell you this. The dirty little secret about evangelical, evangelicalism is that they do the same thing. Many are into a self-promotion, self-protection, self-religion about my performance 
to please God. It has very little resemblance to the gospel. So let's clean up our own laundry and before we start pointing the finger at other systems. But there's an example of this that I think is really interesting. And it's a man whose faith faltered, and you may not even realize it, but it was John the Baptist. We see John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God in John 1.29. And later he said, I am not even fit to untie his sandal. Clearly, he understood who Christ was as the Messiah and was praised for this. However, later, after being in a prison for apparently at least a year and being severely tested and apparently alone, and look at the number of uh, people that have suffered from depression just in the last two years because of the isolation of the pandemic and all that. We, we can understand the, 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 uh, the issues that go on in our head when that takes place right? And then John sees other Jewish people rejecting Christ as the Messiah. And so with all of this going on, what does John the Baptist do? Listen to Matthew 11. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who's to come? Or shall we look for another? John the Baptist. Some might think that John lost his way here, was no longer deserving of salvation. I'd agree with that. He was not deserving of salvation, but that doesn't mean his salvation was pulled because none of us are deserving of salvation. But we see an interesting response from Jesus. Verse 7 says Jesus addressed the crowd about John. And in Matthew 11, verses 7 through 19, this is what it says. And they went away. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go and go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a, the prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your faith, uh, face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. For the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent uh, take it by force. For all the prophets and law prophesied until John, and even if you are unwilling to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces, calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he was a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. You know what we don't see? We don't see Jesus throwing John under the bus. You know what we don't see? We don't see Jesus piling on John. Instead, what he says is, don't you remember his faith? Remember how he was the forerunner of me? And then he, he partners with them in saying how both he and Jesus were, were mistreated. And then, and then later, in Matthew 12, verse 20, he says, a bruised reed, this is a quote from Isaiah, he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. In other words, Jesus is not going to create a heavier weight upon John to break him with condemnation. Jesus does not break us to where we're worthless or feel like, you know, our faith is a zero and we are a zero. That he knows how much pressure to apply. It's an amazing truth. And even in the midst of failure, where John the Baptist's faith was teetering, Jesus gives him this encouragement. This is so unlike the evangelical church. I gotta just say it. We are so prone to point the finger and to judge. And yet to those that are weak and suffering, he just comes alongside. Encourages, oh, John, I remember your faith. How great it was. And I know how hard it is. And I'm going to bear this burden with you. I'm not here to crush you. I'm here to use you. an absolutely wonderful truth. Jesus is not wanting us to live on the edge, wondering if he's going to pull the rug out from under us when our faith falters. Yet, there is tremendous reward for a faith that remains. Don't hear me wrong. Being in Christ offers an unaltering protection from forces within and without that it calls our hearts to spring forth in joy that is inexpressible. That's why Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2.13, what did he say? If we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful. Wait, 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 wait. wait. I, I thought he remains faithful if I'm faithful. Now, if I'm faithful, I get rewards. God, there are benefits to that. But when I'm faithless, he's not pulling the rug out from under us. I am under the Abrahamic covenant when I am faithless. God's the only one, remember, in the midst who made the covenant with his people. Remember the book of Hosea? All those things Judah and Israel did, and yet they were still his people. Did they suffer consequences? Immense destruction. There are immense consequences for the faithless 
Christian, you don't get away with it. But for those genuinely converted, they stay converted. They stay the children of God. I'm not going to break the bruised reed, Jesus is saying. This gives glory to the faithfulness of Christ. That's why it's glory-filled. Because of how great he is. Not how great I am. Not how wonderful my faith was. The faithfulness of Christ. The expanse of his grace. The extent of his forgiveness. The efficacy of his sacrifice. The boundless love for his people. Our job? Paul said it so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the goodness of God. 